This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to the first episode of Welcome to Greenland, the Hollywood podcast from creator Ryan Murphy and Ian Brennan. Tonight we're actually talking about the pilot episode, which was called Hooray for Hollywood. It was written by Ryan Murphy and Ian Brennan, and it was directed by Ryan Murphy. Hey, Caroline, how are you doing? Welcome to a new podcast. Always always fun to start a new endeavor. I know, right? I'm super excited about this one. I feel like I need some sort of fantasy television show to watch right now, something that gets us out of big Rona times. What are a couple of quick buzzwords when you think of this show? <laughs> Sexy, glamorous, colorful, melodic. Melodic? Because mm-hmm, I, like I, I paid attention to every song that they were playing in the background. Dazzling. What are your words? Sexy as fuck. Especially in this pilot episode, I think it's one of its big strengths. It's not like porn sexy, it's like seductive sexy. Yes, I wrote that too. I wrote like slow seductive. The lady in a a really sexy dress. Maybe not showing a lot of skin, but like a, a slit just up to here. Or a guy with like his tie loosened. A little playful, a little sexy. Colorful. It's like being in a really lucid dream. Ooh, you know what that just made me think of? It's like in Wizard of Oz when she opens the door in Munchkinland and everything's suddenly like colorful and bright and full of energy. That's dead on because if you think especially how this episode opens with who we'll know is Jack Costello, he's watching the black and white newsreel and then uh, he pulls in and then we're all of a sudden in, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're in Los Angeles. We're in Missouri for that matter. That's where Jackie's from. Yeah, so, you know, very... You're stepping into a world that's not like our own, but maybe a world that we wish was our own, or at least our past. This show started with three words that made me very excited. I sat up and I, I grabbed my popcorn. You did? Uh, I did. Right at the top left of the screen, right after the boom, yeah. the Netflix logo. Sex, nudity, language. I am here for all three of those things. <laughs> You were like, that's all you had to say. In my notes, I have sex, checkmark, nudity, checkmark, language, checkmark, smoking, with a big X to that. I am not a fan of the smoking. I think smoking is disgusting. But I appreciate you're talking about the 1940s. You have to have, you know, smoking as part of that aesthetic. You can appreciate it when it's done in a movie, right? When it's done, like, with, like, a James Dean-esque vibe. Yeah. Ew, gross. James Dean, gross. I get the period piece coolness of it all. If there was no smoking in the show, I would probably notice that and it would probably bother me. If you're given a quick elevator pitch, you're only going from floor one to floor three. What's your elevator pitch for what Hollywood is about? I would say that Hollywood is a chance to reinvent what could have happened post-World War II in the areas of racism, sexism, and politics, maybe even because I'm going to say politics having to do with Hollywood politics in Hollywood and how that would extrapolate into today's world. Three, bing, my door's open. What if you could rewrite the story that's right there at the tagline on the top of all the promotional key art for this show? So here's the official premise of the show. Follows a group of aspiring actors and filmmakers in post-World War II Hollywood as they try to make it in Tinseltown, no matter the cost. Each character offers a unique glimpse behind the gilded curtain of Hollywood's golden age, spotlighting the unfair systems and biases across race, gender, and sexuality that continue to this day. Hollywood exposes and examines decades-old power dynamics and what the entertainment landscape might look like if they had been dismantled. Now, you watched episode one. Does that premise jive with what you saw on the screen? I think so, yes. I think that they brought up lots of different things in the first episode. I am watching another show right now. You have to watch three full episodes to really get drawn in. And in this one, I was fully drawn in in one. 
they went all in. They brought so much. There was so much going on. It was a dense episode. I mean, a fan of TV, I think there are expectations I have for pilot episodes. Quality-wise, they can vary wildly. There are some pilots that really bring you into the story quickly. There are some pilots that have no time for the story because they spend all their time just introducing the characters and the, the really basic world building. And this show definitely does that. It definitely does the world building. It introduces a lot of characters. And in fact, it's funny because we only meet like about two thirds, half, yeah. somewhere between half and two thirds of the regular full-time cast in this episode. So imagine how dense the show will be once it gets cooking. Because this was jam-packed. There was really no wasted time here. This is definitely a show about the up-and-comers trying to upend the system. It reminded me a little bit of the pilot for season three of Maisel. But the difference was that when you said no filler, I thought, you know what? They could have easily, and I mean easily, started off various scenes like, say, the extras scene. They could have started off on like a soundstage and had someone be tap dancing or singing for a couple of minutes and then follow the casting lady out to the gates and call in a couple of people. Like if they wanted to do that, which is what Maisel did, you could have filled so much time and people wouldn't necessarily be ugly about it, but it just wouldn't have hooked me in the way that I needed to be hooked to like get going on a whole story. I love musicals, don't get me wrong. I'm glad that if they're going to do stuff like that, let it be later. Let me meet the characters and get to know them first. I 100% agree. And the pacing was really well done in this episode all the way up to the cliffhanger. I would have been annoyed if I felt like they were filling the pork that way. You don't need that here because these characters are drawn colorfully and they all represent like a different color in the spectrum. Right. Let's talk about Jackie Costello. And what did, what did you feel? What was like your first gut response to Jackie coming on the screen? I love David Cornsweet. I fell in love with him during The Politicians. David Cornsweet's performance as River really hooked me into that show. So seeing him here being very clean cut in a war, you know, an army vet, super happy to see him. And I think he's really like exercising his acting chops. As a character, I think, I think his is a story that we have heard a lot. It's a story, though, that we usually get from like a female perspective. So I think it's interesting that the creatives here have gone with the Midwestern blue-eyed guy instead of the girl who's come to Hollywood to make a name for himself with no skill set at all. Well, that's not true. I guess he has one particular skill set. I agree with you very much. I think the casting was great in that he physically has that bit of innocence to him, but also he exudes that young, fit eager to work, eager to follow dreams, like hopefulness, excitement that I feel like fits this character really well. I'm really happy with the casting there. I, th I think he matches both physically and just his general personality fit. More than his good looks, I agree with you. I think he really embodies the idea of the young 20-something just home from World War II. You know, you think of the picture, the Navy guy kissing the nurse, the New York docks when they come home from war, that kind of euphoria um, in post-World War II America, and you had these young, fresh guys who, big senses of duty, you know, he's got a wife, got twins on the way, as it turns out, full of the sense of, I have to provide for my family, I have to make a living, but also I have dreams. I have dreams, and I want to make them come true. And I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I know standing at this gate every day is a step towards doing that. It's a, it was a great balance. It was a great balance. Really, really subtle. I think his acting was probably even more subtle than the writing for him. So I think in that way, it complemented each other really nicely. He could have been a really cheesy, over-the-top, 
eager kid and I'm glad he isn't. I'm glad he does have that reserved part to his character. It's really important to me. I think a lesser TV show would have made him either a total bumpkin. Well, I've never been on the big city before. Or like a total lech, like a disgusting pig that would have, before Ernie even, you know, finished explaining what Dreamland is about, would have been boning someone in a car. Like, I think a lesser TV show would have drawn him in an extreme. So let's talk a little bit about his wife, Henrietta. I know that you recognized her right away. I totally didn't. I recognized her name when I went to look up who that was because I didn't recognize her at all. I was shocked to find this is Maud Apatow, who I don't think I have seen since she played Sadie in Knocked Up, what, 13 years ago. She's one of Judd Apatow's two daughters that are in that movie. She's the older one. But holy crap. She's I like mean, a grown she, person, Mike. She is How a grown woman. So she's like 23, but I feel, I feel like she looks older than 23 in this on purpose. I think her and Jack are supposed to probably be in their mid-20s, not really early 20s. Still shocking to me to remember that little girl from that movie is now this grown woman having twins. Having twins. Oh, jeez. What did you think about, about her and like being a waitress and her demeanor, her stomping out of the bank when they don't get the loan? Were you like, I like this lady? Or were you like, I don't get it. This isn't going to last. I liked her individually. I am concerned about her and Jack's compatibility. Like so many young people, especially at this time, these are the people who are, are creating the baby boom generation. And she's doing her part. She, she probably got pregnant the minute he got home from NZO. I don't know that they really thought about what they were getting into. We learned she's basically supporting the two of them on her waitress salary. And how much could a waitress possibly have been making in the mid-1940s? It's a, it's a pharmacy soda shop. So like a lot of people wouldn't even tip necessarily because you're like at the counter and like people would just take their stuff and like move along. I can't imagine she makes any money at all. You know, my heart broke for them a little bit when he, when he walks in and it's all candlelit. I knew exactly, I'm sure you did too, right away what had happened. But he says, it's not our anniversary, is it? No, they turned off our utilities. And I get her. Her frustration I get from her he's my husband and I want to support him in his dream I don't think at any point she says to him you're not an actor stop trying to be an actor go get a job somewhere but there's also a palpable frustration which I think is really justified I will tell you one thing that caught my eye when he goes to visit her and pick her up for her doctor's appointment did you catch the scene when he comes in when we see her at work yes Jack walks in she she's talking and smiling and joking with a guy about her age behind the counter and she sees him and her face falls and she's like, what are you doing here? And he has to remind her they have doctor's appointment. Now you have had kids. I do, yes. Was there ever a time that you forgot about having a doctor's appointment while you were pregnant? No, not even a little. No. I thought that was super odd as well. Like I was like, wait, she forgot? Like he's here to pick her well, up and doesn't even remember? My impression from that, and I think it was well played because I think it was super subtle, was I think she forgot because she was being very well distracted by her coworker. Mm. I think that, that was the total vibe of that scene going to file that away because I think that was actually some pretty good acting that was not coincidental. Okay, so we're wondering a little bit about Henrietta. Like, what's your business? Are you being faithful? And is the idea that this guy is not providing and the fact that you know you're pregnant and everything, the lights go out and, you know, or the electricity's cut off. I don't know. Is that a pretty doomed relationship that we're being laid out here? Yes. This relationship either ends or continues in some kind of Cold War-like detente where <laughs> they stay together because they stay together. But th this is not a relationship built on solid rocks. What did you think after all of this table setting that we get? That he is a destitute loser who's not making any money. Can't even make 10 bucks at, a, at, a, at the lot. 
and then comes home with 500 bucks cash. And she doesn't question it. She just accepts it and is smiley at the end. This is one of those things that I was actually going to ask you about. He doesn't offer up any type of reason. He's just like, tips are good, right? I don't feel like she has any actual permission to ask any questions or anything about it. I kind of wonder, this whole concept of like men who like buy a car and bring it home or buy a house and just come home and tell you this is where you live now, that is not my experience. And so I don't really get it, but it is very indicative of this time period. And you're just supposed to be happy that you're being provided for. I'm using my air quotes. Do men think that that's okay? I know back then they certainly did, but do you feel like men even nowadays feel like that's okay? As a man, I feel an obligation to provide for my family because of my work ethic. Feel, I don't feel an obligation to provide for my family because I am a man and I shall bring home meat and money to, you know, toss on the table. I, not like a Fred Flintstone kind of dynamic, but more born out of a work ethic of I work hard because I want to be able to provide anything my family would need. That, that's kind of my motivation, which is not what this is about. Right, uh, and the, it's that or the extra ma- layer. Or the madman dynamic, or yeah. this is all born out of a very dominant, submissive power relationship. Yeah, they're like not partners in this in any way. It's not like, here, I'm presenting you like like with the kill. You're not allowed to ask any questions <laughs> of where did the kill come from? It's like, none your business. And even if, and even when she kind of musters a question, and even, I, I don't remember, it may have been more of like an eye roll or of like, where did this come from? He says to her, Caroline, I'm doing good work at the gas station. But you've been at the gas station for how long now? Like weeks. At best, weeks. Did the profit sharing (laughs) program at gas station, quote, good work at gas station, quote, eye roll? (laughs) They didn't paint her as stupid. But do women do this? Do women put their head in the sand and just be like, well... So long as I get to go on my trip, so long as the bills are paid, so long as whatever, then I don't really care. Now, she's a little different because she's, I need food for my baby. Like, it's a little more dire. I need to keep the lights on. It's a little different. But the majority of people are like, I don't really know. I don't know what what bills we pay. I don't don't really know. I think I see that a lot. What do you think? I mean, so is this realistic? For sure, it's right out of the Leave it to Beaver setting. Is your question, is it realistic still today? Probably more than we than any of us would like to admit it probably is unfortunately and i think because i think there are a lot of cultures and i think there's a lot of areas in this country and around the world where the power dynamics are still very much present based on the gender politics and and the gender roles i think that this particular situation kind of i don't know bothers me a little bit because when i first got married i paid all the bills and i knew everything about the bills and i was the only one that paid the bills once i had kids though there was like a real like come to jesus moment of like three children in 10 and a half months i can't keep up with all of these different things i can't be mowing the lawn and taking care of children, and taking the car for oil changes, and paying the bills. I know you bring home the money, but like, I can't do all those things. And so we had like an actual moment where I said, I actually want a 1950s split because it's easy in my mind to know, is this like a quote unquote man job or a quote unquote woman's job? And it's just easier. There's no like argument about it. If it's about like doing something out in the yard, that's you. If it's with the car, that's you. You handle the finance part. I will handle kids, go into every teacher meeting. I will go to every doctor's appointment with them, sign them up for sports. I will do all that. Like I'm 
that side. Over time, that's changed because our kids are bigger and I have more time and I can come back and be like, all right, what are all the passwords to everything? But I think people get in that groove and never come back. I think your situation, the way you've described it, though, is different than the situation we're seeing here with Jack and Henrietta, because you chose what you just called the, the 1950s split, but you chose that. It was a level playing field power dynamic that made sense for your circumstances. I don't think Henrietta and Jack sat down and had a woke discussion Okay, I'm going to be the baby maker right. and sit and read by candlelight when you fail to provide enough money to keep the utilities on and you go and bring home the meat and the money. And the weird thing is, is that she's not just the baby maker. She goes to work. And that is right. different. You know, like I could see her falling into the baby maker job in a couple of years or in a year. But right now I'm sort of like, sister, what do you guys talk about? <laughs> If not, how do we pay the bills? I think I was annoyed at her naivety here at the end. I think that's what bothered me about it. I think that's why I wrote Eye Roll. I feel like we were shown someone who was not a, a June Cleaver, just baby maker. She seemed more with it than that, which is what you would hope it would be. And maybe that's not the realistic part. Maybe the realistic part is in 1940-whatever, a wife would just take the 500 bucks cash. And, you know, did, did you catch the part where he tells her, just like the good man that he is. Uh, it's not for spending. Mm -hmm. It's not for shopping. Because women be shopping, Mike. Women be shopping. It's not for shopping. <laughs> it's not for shopping. No. It's for putting down for the house. This is not about frocks, okay? Ryan Murphy, I think, has a tendency sometimes to be a little uneven with his dialogue. But I don't think he has ever written a line that was accidental. And I, I think a lot of what we see in Jack and Henry, especially here at the end, is all very intentional to show you what the score is in this marriage. She's willfully putting her head in the sand and not asking about the money. Not because it doesn't occur to her to, but because she doesn't want to. Can I tell you a reason that I would give you on this one? I'm going to tie it back to your observation of what's going on in Schwab's. I think that if you're somebody that's doing something that you don't want a lot of questions asked about, that you are very unlikely to be a question asker. Because the last thing you want to do is open the door to a Q&A. <laughs> and so if he's doing something this sketchy to get this money, and I don't know, she's arm touching at work, maybe you just say, cool. And you like look at each other and be like, good dinner. <laughs> and that's it. Because if you start picking that, picking at that, he might turn around and say, well, I have questions for you. Well, you know, when I came in, what the hell? You forgot your doctor's appointment? Like, explain yourself. And you don't want right. to be open to that. So you just take your little fanned out money and smile and be super duper happy. That's my best guess. I really like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it also works his way too. I mean, he saw her laughing and touching. He, he looked at his watch and was like, we have a doctor's appointment. But he didn't ask too many questions either because he doesn't want to really be getting into a deep discussion about what his activities are going to be mm -hmm. either. That's very Golden Girls when she says, did I say there'd be a Q&A following this? <laughs> That's how I feel. Little ditty about Jack and Henrietta. I'm a little too worried about these kids uh, growing up in the heartland. I'm interested to see how much Henrietta really plays into the story because I feel like the thrust of what we were being told tonight was keep an eye on Jack, the, the guy who is doing what he has to do to provide. Keep an eye on the next guy I want to talk about, Archie Coleman, played by Jeremy Pope. 
He is the African-American screenwriter who has sold a movie for $100 about Peg and Whistle. Could you imagine today selling a movie in Hollywood for 100 bucks and that was it? There, okay, so there's so many parts to this that Archie brought in that was really interesting to me, Mike. And I mean, really. The whole thing about the fact that he is a man of color during this time frame, we don't have the internet. How does he know the story of Peg and Whistle? And how did he go about doing this? How were people answering questions to him? Or he was able to go, what, interview a family from Britain? Like, all of this is like, whoa. It gives you that surreal feeling of like, all right, all right, this isn't today's world. Because if it was late 1940s that we know, this man would not have access to this story in a way to write a whole screenplay to me. Additionally, though, I gotta say, I was so happy with how clever parts of his story went. Having Jackie dress as a cop and come in and figure out that if he doesn't want to have to suck dick or do things with men, he's going to have to find someone else who will. This is going to be the way he's out of this. Love that kind of problem solving, Mike. I love it. I was floored at how clever that was. I loved it. <laughs> I, I think until that moment, we hadn't really been shown that Jack was particularly clever. Very pretty, very determined, has ambition. That was some real good problem solving. Do you know what it is though, Mike? If you are a straight man, how bad do you not want to suck dick? How smart are you suddenly gonna get? No matter how not intelligent you are. That's a motivation. To think to go get the costume, to go to a movie house. Yeah. I wrote Jack is clever in my the margins of my notes here because so I think that really changes the dynamic on how you have to think about him and maybe hold him even more accountable for the actions and choices that he's making. I like that very much. Additionally, I would say that the whole scene set up when he gets in the car with Roy, every hair on my neck went up. I was so scared that I was about to have to see Archie get beat up. There were so many moments when he, you know, actually goes to his place until this one thing happened. I was on the edge of my seat in fear for Archie until he says he wants to become an actor. He says he's going to be, he wants to be a writer and the physical acting, running and jumping onto the bed. And the two of them look like they're having a pajama party. Then I, my whole heart went like, Oh, thank God. He's not going to kill him. <laughs> like, he's not going to beat him up. It's not going to happen because now they're like friends and this is good and okay. But until then, the history that I know said Archie doesn't get out of here without a, at least a black eye, if not worse. It really sold the like, this is a different Hollywood than you think. Thank God. It's the lucid dream version of Hollywood and plot lines not being predictable. When I first saw this, the immediate vibe with uh, Dylan McDermott's Ernie in that bar, knowing Jack was this actor not getting any play at the gates, my first thought was, oh, he's going to have to suck this guy's dick to get a movie role. This guy's going to turn out to be the head of a movie studio, and he's going to, you know, he's going to want a blowjob, you know, quid pro, quid pro quo for an acting role. And it didn't play out that way at all. Like, it played out like a cousin of that, right. but in a, in a much more patriotic capitalistic kind of way. And that's what this um, show is. It is the cousin yeah. to reality. It's it's like there's enough reality in it. I am going to be worried. There are those overtones. Obviously, Archie says, you know, a, a man of color is not going to be given a contract with the studio. So we know that there are things in place that are the same as would have been 1940s America. Right. That twist of it being like 
No, they actually could be friends. Mike, have you ever seen that happen in a movie? We're in that situation. A man has solicited another man and it doesn't go bad like that. Like, oh my God, that was like the whole setup for something to go horribly wrong. Always ends badly in every kind of television movie show, whether it's in the 1940s, whether it's in the 2000s, and not just in movies and stuff, but like everything. Very realistically, the same way that he wouldn't have been able to even have access to the story, like the very good point you were making, this would not have ended well for him. But I think you have touched on something really important that the show is getting at. Ryan Murphy and, and Ian Brennan's Hollywood is not trying to fix all of the problems of Hollywood. It is not trying to fix all of the problems of the world. It is trying to fix very specific problems. It's trying to reimagine a world where very specific things don't exist. A black guy still can't get a studio contract, but maybe he can get into the system. Maybe he can have a a loving interracial homosexual relationship without it winding in a beatdown or something worse. He's allowed to have hope, which is something that you wouldn't be allowed to have during that time. And that really makes me feel like that's like everything. And honestly, there's that theme of hope throughout. What you said when you said Henrietta doesn't yell at Jackie and say, this is such a stupid dream. You know, you should move on, be a man, get a job, take care of us. She doesn't say that. She allows him to have hope. Just that little bit is a game changer. Hope is this life buoy that keeps so many people afloat and makes the difference so often between despair and getting up in the morning. If you have hope, you you are far from out of the game. And, and so I think it's important that Henrietta doesn't t- try and take that away from Jack and that she shows her love for him by supporting him that way, that Archie and Roy do find each other. And not for nothing, that was some hot business. Oh like, my goodness. I was going to tell you that, that I felt like the scene between Archie and Roy was done just as seductively as the scene between Jackie and Avis, which almost never happens. I found that alone to be a groundbreaking moment to feel like, wow, it feels very Schitt's Creek in that it's like, why would we show the homosexual encounter differently than we showed the heterosexual encounter? They both were really slow and seductive. They both actually cared to talk and have emotions between each other. That's amazing. And it was super hot. The when he and puts his hand on his hot. chest. Mm. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought up the Shits Creek thing too, because one thing you and I talk about a lot in, uh, without a paddle, the Shits Creek podcast, which you can listen to on PCH, is that sexual orientation isn't questioned. It just is. Yes. You're not judged for it. And I think it's telling that Jack, while he doesn't want to have... He doesn't want to partake of that wine, Mike. Yes, he is not into that particular wine, Cole Porter flavored wine, <laughs> but he doesn't judge or otherwise condemn or mock Archie for doing it. He is not really uncomfortable when he's in that, in that gay movie house. He doesn't say, I think you're disgusting, but I need you to do this for me. It's not that he accepts it. It just, that's the wine you're into. I am a sommelier. I am looking for someone who is into this brand of wine. I do not like it personally, but if you like it, I have an opportunity. I have a buyer for you. (laughs) You know, I have a magnum for you. I would imagine that Roy looks like he's a big boy. Oh my. 
<laughs> but, you know, and if anything, Jack asks Archie in a very kind of concerned and loving way, if you had to, could you make it with a woman? Which is yeah. not how that phrasing ever goes on TV. No. You know, it's always the bosom buddies thing is like, if you had to, could you do it with a guy? But no, but Jack gets what the deal is. That. I love that there wasn't a judgment there. It, we've got a square hole and I need a square hole to fill. And oh, wow, it, and, you're going right to the know, holes. <laughs> I, I regretted it literally the second I said Oh my gosh. Out. No, I just, it, it was really great. And I, I want to go over the sex scene with Avis and Jack because there was stuff there that was so right on. And you and I have talked about this a little bit in Schitt's Creek recently about like small turn on moments. Like I have to tell you when he like loosens his tie, kicks his shoes off, we had talked about what a sexy thing that is when we're talking about like post weddings and stuff like that and kind of like taking off your your stuffy clothes. I felt like instantly I was like, oh my God, if I hear the jingle of that bell, I'm gonna like lose my mind. This was so slow and seductive and it didn't uh -huh. have to be. This was a booty call. I don't know, in a normal situation, we're supposed to think this is all skeevy and seedy, but it's not presented that way. It's presented like, it is what it is. This is what we're doing right now. And your line that you really liked of Avis, I think spoke to that when she's asking Jack a question and he's like, do you want the honest answer? And she says, uh, well, we're about to get naked and fuck, so why not? That I kind of that. just like, it is what it is. So let's just move forward. Felt like, the, yeah, you're right on, lady. You know what you're talking we, about. We started this episode by talking about how the show was sexy, not in a porno way, but in a, in a seductive way in a way that makes it last long. This scene was very much that. In his vulnerability to her by speaking honest, in her vulnerability in, in confessing that she just needs to feel like she's not done in life, that she still has something to offer, to, to be seen, to get her pussy eaten out. You know, just to, just to be loved for a little while, even if there's a price tag attached to it. These two need each other. It, it really heightens the sexual aspect of that entire scene. Very hot stuff. I loved how his trepidation just fell away the second that she gives him the compliment, stroke a man's ego, that's all you gotta do, ladies. When she says, you have a light inside of you and I just want you to shine that light on me for a little while, shut up. He was like, man at work, gotta go. Like totally Boing. went yeah, down to uh, business. Yeah, you could literally hear his erection yes. like form. Yes. And I thought that line was cheesy as hell, but also worked perfectly for this scene. It was the exact right thing for her to say. Uh, I think each of us took away something differently, but that whole conversation between them where they're they're bearing their souls, they're listening to each other, but they're both also very much emptying their souls into that room. Why movies, she asks. And he tells her about how all of the great moments of his life revolve around the movies and how going to see the movies showed him what living and being alive was supposed to mean, what it was supposed to look like. What was the line that you liked? From him too, I like that last line when he said, I always feel better when I'm coming out of the movies than I did when I walked in. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that I very much relate to. I feel like you probably do too. And a lot of us who are in reviewing kind of business can absolutely relate. That's why we've fallen in love with this line of, of work for us. Her soul bearing was so matter of fact that it, felt like she had told this story many times. Fact that she was overlooked, that she felt almost trapped by saying, you know, he got me knocked up. And so, you know, I married him and I've made him regret it the rest of his life. Like, it's one of those things that's just like, I can't go anywhere. I'm, I'm a woman with a kid. And you did that. And so 
you trapped me. Oh, wow. That's intense and very real. Part of the seduction for me as well was exactly what you said. And they have the scenes where they have those really quick scenes of Jack banging a woman here or there where it's all kinds of just like lust. And I feel like that's more for the guys. And then I feel like having someone listen to you and talk, not just listen to you, but he bared his soul too. And then you guys talked back and forth. Fucking A. That's seduction for a woman. That is like everything right then. It all worked for me. I think you need a very particular actress to sell what Avis is selling in that scene. I don't know that you can get a better casting than Patti Lapone. TV people may not know Patti, but Patti is a fucking legend of Broadway. She's got a gravitas and she's got a sassiness to her that even today when she sings, when she performs... She's as likely to cut a bitch as she is to, like, lick your cheek. Like, she is sassy personified, and I love her so, so much. Maybe Rue McClanahan, if she is still alive, <laughs> and, and about 30 years. Right. But, like, but Patty is basically the ideal casting for this role. And I want to back up to Archie, because I'm looking at this guy. I'm like, this guy is like, acting his ass off. Like, I didn't know Jeremy Pope at all. And I looked at his IMDb, I was like, this guy hasn't been on the show before. Like, this is it. This is, like his first TV role. That's so exciting. He is also a Broadway guy. I mean, he's coming off of two Tony Award nominations in 2019. One for Choir Boy and one for the uh, jukebox musical Ain't Too Proud. Jeremy has got some fucking skill set also that he's bringing to this. It's just not a TV-based one. So I love that Ryan staffed the show not just with TV vets. I mean, there there are a bunch of people we didn't get to meet this week that we're going to see coming up in the in the coming weeks that are, you know, hard-hitting TV people. But we did have Dylan McDermott. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of young actors with, like, very small resumes that are talented. But we also have, like, these great Broadway people, which just makes me pray and hope that we get to hear them sing because that would be some... I really think we will. I was going to ask you that. I was like, so doesn't that mean, like, for sure there's a musical number coming? Isn't that what Avis's whole thing is? I mean, she was a... well, she was a silent movie star, though. And so right, I, don't I guess know. that's true. She... I don't know what her talents, where her talents lie. But given that it's Patti Lapone, that would be right. obscene to not have her right. do something, right? There's such a La La Land vibe to the yes. show a bit. I like La La Land and I am very into musicals. I love the aesthetic of the 1940s big studio musical. As big as like the war movies were in the 40s and the 50s, the studio musical was a big fucking thing. And so I'm hoping and praying that we get to have some kind of musical interlude. So I was glad that I solved the mystery of Jeremy Pope because I could not, <laughs> he's 27 and with no TV credits, but he's acting his ass off. Oh yeah, he's a Broadway star. That's why. <laughs> I also, I, I wanted to agree with you about Patti Lapone in terms of that vibe that she brings. This is a woman who drives to a gas station and picks up a dude on the regular. You can't just have her be a prissy rich bitch. She's also someone who's gritty, who is got all the gumption like all day long because this is the late 1940s, yo. She is acting like a boss. I mean, I'm here for it. I fucking love it. And it is amazing casting to have the right. actual actress feel like that's legit. That chick would do this. I mean, he says, aren't you afraid of being seen? And she says, that's part of the fun, baby. Hells yeah. Do you know what I call it? It's called peacocking. And you're like, you know what? I want 
you to look at me, okay? Look at me, do it. That's the whole freaking point. If we're being honest, it would have taken a lot less for me to get down to business with Avis than it took Jack. I'm just saying. Uh, I mean, I love the, you've got a light inside of you, you know, share it with me line, but I, I would have been on my knees well before. <laughs> Here's just, the thing though. Just, just, just straight thought. And I appreciate that. I, I really do think that they did a good job of saying little moments like, have you ever cheated on your wife before? And he's like, no, yes, no, yes. Whole thing. Ernie says, good, because the first one's the hardest one. Like, get that one out of the way. I kind of felt like that was a little foreshadowing to his first time with Avis. Because after that, we just got like a sex montage. It was no longer anything. You know, it didn't matter anymore. It was just like, cool, let's just do this. When I was watching this episode, I put up on Twitter and I made a comparison to Loverboy, to the 1989 Patrick Dempsey movie, Loverboy, to, to this first episode. Patrick Dempsey needs to make money. He becomes a pizza delivery guy and then falls into this gigolo role where he ends up having to fill in for the normal guy, the, the normal gigolo. He becomes the new gigolo and, and, and all of these lonely housewives, you know, it starts off kind of across the board as sex, but then it turns into him being uh, intimacy in different ways for all of the different wives. You know, it, it goes from sex montage into settling into different things. You know, yeah, he fucks great, but also maybe he can take me dancing. Maybe he can listen to me. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe he's a project I can work on and, and get a studio role. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many comparisons between how the stories are starting out. I think they're going to diverge wildly. But there was a real vibe here. I was, I was right back, an 11 year old, you know, watching Loverboy, thinking it was super sexy, and I found this super sexy. The seduction of it all. Yeah. The power of the intimacy that we got to see here between Roy and Archie between Avis and, and Jack. And you're, when you're talking about the sexiness, that's really what you're talking about. You're not really talking about banging the Italian girl during the war or flipping over wheelbarrow style the girl during the sex montage. That's the raw dog in sex. But what really gets your mind going is that the intimate. I totally loved it. That I hope some men who maybe would not have seen this watch this and say, damn, like now that I've seen it, I know what it is. And like, that is sexy. And it is worth like giving its due time. Whatever your orientation, look at your partner, the way Archie's looking at Roy <laughs> before they get it on. Yes. Be vulnerable with your partner the way Jack and Avis are with each other before he gets down and prays at the altar. The The lessons here, people cross orientation lines they 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 work for all body parts absolutely being vulnerable and being intimate with someone else is the ultimate turn on why do we have jack and archie in these positions because of ernie and his golden tip gasoline service station how much did you love all the the double entendres that was the come for the <laughs> the big tip can't get enough of full service innuendo jokes when you are pumping gas and then pumping customers. Like, you, you, it just, it never gets old, and it's always funny. It's perfect. He, he has a real Jiminy Cricket pimp vibe about yes, him. Yes, pimp was the word I wrote. I'm like, he is mega pimp vibe. <laughs> like, a, but like with Jiminy Cricket kind of, like, on your shoulder, kind of trying to point you in the right way. You know, well, yes, he's definitely, well, he's headhunting Jack. But he also knows the road Jack is trying to go down. He says to him when he storms out the first time, he says, you don't think I wanted to be an actor too? Ernie has seen it. Ernie has a cough because of all the things he has seen. Oh, a very upsetting, dangerous cough. <laughs> There's a part of him that is trying to show 
yeah, you can go through the woods and deal with the Wicked Witch and deal with the nasty trees, but I'm showing you this shortcut to the good life over here in Oz. You don't have to do all that bullshit. <laughs> Just, you've already done it once. It gets easier. You're not hurting anyone. I don't know. So what is that? That's not Jiminy Cricket exactly. It's like it's like pimp Jiminy pimp Cricket. Pimp Jiminy Cricket. It's like Jiminy Cricket with like a with Crown Royal pimp hat and whatnot. It's not like Jiminy Cricket like everything's got to be good. You got to be on the path. He's trying to give him the path that gets you through Dreamland, which is different than sort of like the straight and narrow, if you will. Oof. That should have been the episode title, Path to Dreamland. That's some good shit, Carolyn. Thanks. I'm pretty smart. It's SMRT. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a homer. <laughs> Jiminy Cricket, maybe. I, I was thinking more because of like, you know, doing the right thing Oh, here. just the whispering in his ear. The whole thing yeah. of being like, this is what you need to do if you want to really, you know, you got to provide. You know, you got a baby. Right, exactly. And he knows it. He knows it. He has seen a thousand jacks come through. This is not his first rodeo. Mm -mm. You know, he's not out in bars headhunting for his help. He knows what he needs, but he also knows what these guys need. And he knows Jack's number from the second he sees him in that bar. So I'm going to stick with Pimp Jiminy Cricket. You know, the fedora, the, the feather. <laughs> the, the mustache, the rings, oh, and a yeah. white jacket. That's all very, very key. And then you have to be willing to announce that your cock was too big. <laughs> You didn't get the part, Mike, because your cock was too big. This I is mean, pimp talk, we, yo. This is pimping. We all have a cross to bear. I know. Uh, I love what he did his hand. He's like, I'm 12 inches hard as a rock. He like made his little fist. I was like, oh, you're hilarious. I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> I love I loved Dylan McDermott. I'm a big fan of his work almost always. I can't think of something I don't really like him in. But when he's like this, it is so rare. And so therefore, it is so refreshing to see him silly like this. I liked American Horror Story the first season. I, I still is the season that I like the most because of Connie Britton. But also because of Dylan McDermott. The, the work he did, the complicated psychosexual work that he's doing in that first season, jacking off and crying and staring at the window and all the weird shit that he goes through and handles with a straight face and it really elevates it to art. This is like the other side of that. You know, Ernie West is the other side of that character from like American Horror Story who has fully bought into the America that Jack fought for is the sex-fueled America that Ernie is selling out of the Golden Tip. I think the Golden Tip is also going to give a whole lot of opportunity to share all types of important information, like what is sexually ambidextrous? That's a good question, Jack. It's when you like both the cat and the kitten. I've heard a lot of euphemisms for being bisexual or pansexual. Like wine labels, right? I have never heard of being sexually ambidextrous, but it is a genius, genius term. It's perfect. And it's it's one of those times, too, that I think that this exact setup, the gas station unto itself, the service station with this group of guys, with the Jiminy Pimp on your shoulder... I feel like this is going to be a hotbed of great dialogue and growth moments where they're teaching each other things about the industry or about life in general. That if mm -hmm. this was all it was, if it was a bunch of guys running a service station, like this is what the story was, I would be interested in watching this show. So the fact that this is just like a tiny nugget as a part of this way bigger story. Fascinating, Mike. Really is, I'm really here for it. That, these are the kinds of things that I really seized on in this episode that 
that made me look forward. I, I really like just the foundation of the Archie Jack alliance. One one behind the camera, one wanting to be in front of the camera. Both of them doing what they have to provide for themselves or for their families. I feel like we're starting like a rap pack. Yeah. Here. And I'm really excited to see how it kind of builds and changes and, and what kind of role Ernie is playing. That cough really does bother me. I'm a little worried that we're going to get emotionally attached to Ernie mm-hmm. and then he is going to have something really sad happen to him. Can't do the gigs anymore on account of the cough. Yeah. So you already pretty much know bad news bears there. So since this is bigger than just this sort of service station story and we get to all of that as Hollywood, did you enjoy the lingo corner of learning more about the industry through our character Lou? When Lou says he got to learn the lingo, my ears perked up and a big smile came across my face. You, you and I cover a lot of shows together, especially in Making the Cut. One of the things that I wished that show did was stop and educate me in the business terms that they would use that maybe I don't know. And, and so I thought it would be a fun segment, Caroline, for us to do a kind of a lunch and learn in every episode. You know, industry terms that they don't take the time to explain because the people in the show know what they mean already because they're in the business. Yeah. But but maybe we don't know what they mean. A, a little learn the lingo segment. I think even if it's not in the show, I want to quiz you or you can quiz me on some uh, industry lingo each week. Even if it doesn't come out in the show that week, I totally want you to like try to see if you can stump me. And I will try to stump you. This week I have three phrases that I thought were interesting that I thought maybe weren't like obvious. So so can I test you on the first yes. one? Yes. And it came up in this learn the lingo scene. So this is both like watching comprehension and or just general industry knowledge. These are terms that are, these are industry terms that we heard in this episode. So you're testing my visual and like auditory comprehension. Yes, 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 yes. So the first one we heard, it was actually in the scene with Lou. Uh, we hear the phrase lensing. Were you able to pick up on what, what lensing I believe means? Lou said that means to shoot a movie, right? To film it. It is just a really pretentious way to say film or shoot a motion picture. Yes, it is. <laughs> but I guess you don't actually say you're making a movie. When he, he actually even had a phrase for that. He's like, you don't make a movie. You produce it. Uh, second one, supernumerary. Mm, that was the extra. Oh, Extra is, uh, I think, pejorative. Right. We're not supposed to say it, but isn't that... It's a background actor who, like, sets the the tone and, like, the era and whatnot for the scene, right? Supernumerary actually comes from the Latin supernumerarius, which means someone paid to appear on stage in crowd scenes or in the case of opera as non-singing supernumerary is typically more reserved for operas and stage shows. Whereas background actor or background artist or the pejorative extra is used for film, TV shows. It's interesting that supernumerary, which is how Jack refers to himself during the loan meeting, because it is the fancier sounding. It is actually, that phrase is actually usually referred to for stage productions, operas, ballets, stuff like that. So he wasn't actually quite using it in the right vernacular. (laughs) But it's funny. But it was very funny. And it was definitely the way you would say, I'm a secretary versus, that's right, I'm an administrative I am a domestic engineer. Or a domestic goddess. That's polite. But engineer, like, it's it's my job. Exactly. We know a lot of people in the business. They all use, almost ingrained in their brains now. I don't know the last time I heard extra used in conversation. In a, like a long time, so it was funny because that's how Henrietta thinks about her husband, <laughs> and obviously that's how the loan officer also saw him. Not not anything nearly as heightened as Jack thought of himself. Inter- interesting commentary from the wife, you know, given our earlier discussion on, on what she thinks her husband is doing all mm-hmm. day. Third one, which was my one of my favorites, uh, frame wipes. 
Jack talks to Lou mm-hmm. when he returns to the gate and Lou says, oh, you know, I've missed you. I've been, I've been working every day. I've been doing a lot of frame wipes. Ooh. I would have said that it was like the transition time from like one scene to the next, but how would Lou be doing the frame wipes? Is that like when he's walking from one room to another? It is. He explains it a little okay. bit. It's so a frame wipe is not a specific like a specific wipe. A wipe is a transition from one scene to okay, another. Okay, so I did good on that part, right? But this means a little something different. Hundred okay. percent. But what he was describing is a form of invisible cut or invisible wipe. Sometimes it's just referred to as a natural wipe. Basically, the idea is you fill the lens full of one object, blotting out everything else in the background. Mm-hmm which allows the editor to make a seamless cut there if they so choose. That makes sense. It's like when you're at a party and they follow one guest like right into their back, like into the next room, and that like allows them to transition to the next scene. Exactly. So you'll, you'll see it a lot when uh, right, when someone is walking from one room to another and the camera is moving with them, there's always a wall you know, in the set. It's usually when you ha- when you hit the wall allows the editor to make a cut that is otherwise seamless that you can't tell. Wipe allows kind of a seamless transition from one to the other. The West Wing, which is known for its very long tracking shots, the walk and talk tracking shot that the West Wing didn't invent, Tommy Schlamy and Aaron Sorkin, they didn't invent the walk and talk, but they really perfected it and, and heightened it. Every now and then, even for them, a tracking shot would be too long. And what they would do is they would send a background artist close towards the camera across the field of vision really quickly where you didn't even really notice it. It, it just, you know, a passerby, an office worker while Toby and CJ were talking and walking through the, you know, the West Wing. They'd send an office worker close up to the camera across the field of vision and that would be the place where they would be able to make a cut if they needed to. I think it's super cool that this show is given people the opportunity to know the lingo because there's a lot of different very cool lingo that came out during this time even just not being in the industry, but I just, I think that we're going to find a lot of vocabulary that'll be really fun to use. I'm excited to actually have this little like lunch and learn moment at the end of each of our podcasts to like learn a little bit more about the industry and what, be a little more well acquainted. Our core characters that we're following are fictional characters, Jack, Archie, Avis, but they are surrounded by very real people, people that existed in the real world. We have we have several name drops. We have Cole Porter is name dropped. He's the one waiting in the van <laughs> that Jack runs that away so from. Funny. He's like, there's a problem. There's a guy in there. <laughs> the innocent moment of there's a guy in there. <laughs> it was very funny. It was very funny. Because Ernie's defense for it, the way he got so mad about yeah. it, he's kind of getting on his high horse and, and yelling at Jack about having, you know, this moral breakdown now. And he's talking about how important Cole Porter is to this country. He even mentions that a song that Jack was singing the day before was a Cole Porter song. He's building up in his anger and his righteousness. He says something like, if you need to lend a hand to the national treasure that is Cole Porter, go lend a goddamn hand. <laughs> you know, like it's it's almost like a patriotic right? duty to jack off Be Cole ashamed Porter. of yourself. <laughs> yeah. Ernie sees it like this is the America that he says Jack fought for, you know, and you should be still willing to part. But be a goddamn patriot. And go get Cole Porter off so he can go create. <laughs> so funny. That's the thing, too, about this this show that I enjoy. It's not like it's a Hollywood without sin or a Hollywood without right. like questionable morals and whatnot. It's not reimagined as perfect. It's just reimagined as different. And I think that that's super fun. It's looking to take on and reimagine very specific issues it sees 
with Hollywood and maybe a writ larger America at this time? What, what would the world be like if we were able to change these things back then? But it's definitely and most assuredly not trying to change everything. No. It is not taking out smoking. It is not trying to take out seedy sex. Tell me, I think that we are going to talk about sexism, racism, and but I kind of think the idea of what is beautiful. Because Avis mentions it, that because she's Jewish, Jewish people are not considered attractive. And so I'm not exactly sure what label to put on that. But I know I understand that you could say racism and just like leave it at that. But I think there's something more to that in Hollywood because it's so much about your visual, so much about what you look like. So like what value we place on physical attractiveness and what is attractive. When she said I was deemed too Jewy looking, oh my God, my whole face scrunched. Mm -hmm. But I, I it, it was like a whiplash across the yeah. face that this was a, you know, anti-Semitism, especially in Hollywood at this time. You know, we're not too far away from like the McCarthy hearings. That's coming in like a decade from now. Jewish writers in Hollywood were a major part of the blackball list uh, that came out of that. They were ostracized in a very real way. It's just interesting that we're already seeing that through Avis. That's something that she's been suffering since before the World War, you know, before World War II, yeah. she was she was experiencing. Well, and additionally, things. looks got brought up in so many different ways. Obviously, it's Hollywood. I mean, that it's synonymous, right? What you look like matters. Well, that's your currency, right? The way that it's talked about, like, so when the casting woman says to Jack, you know, you're a dime a dozen, you're just a pretty face, and that's it. That like devaluing and then he brings back that his his family would say like, well, it's a good thing you're you're good looking, basically, which would imply you're not very smart. All the different parts to it about talking about looks and what is beautiful and what is what we want to see on the screen. I don't know. Again, I can't quite put it in a box yet exactly what the message is going to be yet exactly. But I still feel like that's a theme that we're going to talk about a lot. I think you're right. And as it should. I mean, if you're making a show like this in 2020, 2019, 2020, you're making a show like this and you're setting it in this dreamland world, this easy to digest, very palatable, nostalgia heavy time of post-World War II America in Hollywood where it's all pretty and all sexy and, and the flaws aren't seen. You have to, you think, be writing from a point of view where you want to reimagine not needing something like the Me Too movement, not needing something like constant struggle of the, of the race wars and inequalities. There are so many things that still persist today that if you're going to go have a fantasy about what would I change way back when, so maybe 80 years later, it's not still institutionalized. I think a lot of what you're what you're talking about are the kinds of things that you'd want to go change. You don't want to take out the fucking. You don't want to take out the sex. That's all good stuff. But how you are treated and deemed as a person in this country, in this in this town, in this business, that's definitely something that you'd want to go change. Which makes it very fun to see how are they going to go about attacking these issues and and what would they consider to be the solution? Because big Rona times. One of the things that keeps getting brought up is people say, oh, you know what? I sat around and I watched Contagion this weekend, or I watched this other like apocalyptic kind of situation. And my question is always the same. It's how did they solve it? What did they do at the end that made it better? Or did it get better? Or did they figure it out? Because what did they do? And I, <laughs> I think that that's so interesting because we just recently on PCH have an, an interview with Stephen Glickman, and he was talking about how Mel Brooks's son 
wrote World War Z. And then he was saying about how he is now being an advisor and or consultant for our government because he wrote these types of scenarios. And the question mark is, how did you write your characters out of these situations? I find that to be exactly what this story is. I'm so curious. How are you going to attack racism? How are you going to change sexism? What are you going to do to make this look different? Well, interesting, because they're setting up that as their goal, how they resolve it is ultimately going to determine how successful this show is. I mean, that's a lofty fucking goal to set for yourself. The good, the upside is if you achieve it and you resolve the story in a believable way that addresses the problem you set out, well, then then great. And you've got a hit on your hands that people are going to love as, as a roadmap for the way it could be and should be. If you fail mm -hmm. or if it requires, you know, Mighty Thor's hammer coming down and whooping ass on studio chiefs who are pigheaded, that's going to fall on deaf ears. And I wish you would not have even started the story. I agree. There. So the journey matters, right? The how matters. The how matters and where you wind up matters. If you're going to give an answer, the answer matters. If it's, if you know, if this is, if this season is all about the journey and we get to the end of whatever it is, episode seven, and, and we don't have an answer yet, but we're on the road to something, you'll still have me. But if you get to an answer and your answer feels cheap or it feels unearned, or it feels like this, you know, deuce ec machina, uh, this contrivance, man, I'm going to feel like I just wasted seven hours of my life. That's a lofty goal to set for yourself. Better stick the landing or, <laughs> you know, you're going to cause problems for yourself. Well, I am really looking forward to being able to cover this with you and get a chance to, to explore some of these possible solutions and, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit more as to, you know, Hollywood and be able to discuss like, so do you think that that was really how it was? Or, or is this a little bit exaggerated? Or could it really be that crazy? One of those questions I asked you was, do you really think that stuff like a gas station service station actually existed? Anything like this? How shocked were you to find Scotty Bowers? I guess I wasn't surprised. But this show is is using uh, as its background artists, uh, real people. We met Roy Fitzgerald. That's the guy that picks up Archie, and, uh, which we didn't say is played by Jake Picking. And he was the only one that we didn't give a credit to. And I think he did a great job. He's got an interesting road to hoe because we, we learned he also wants to be an actor. And probably as difficult as it was for a man of color to get a studio deal behind the scenes, you have to imagine a... Uh, a homosexual character who wants to be a leading man in 1940s movies probably can't be out of the closet. Roy Fitzgerald is the real name of a very famous person in Hollywood, which they didn't reveal, but I'm not going to say it now because we'll find out soon enough. Interesting that they're tackling this uh, real person and their real journey dealing with being a closeted homosexual at, at this time period. Along the lines of the things I think they're going to have to address is sexual orientation for sure the acceptance of queer people in the and, movie and then the necessity of things like the golden tip gas station right because of the lack of acceptance pimp earn you know uh jiminy pimp, jiminy, jiminy pimp is, <laughs> jiminy pimp that's it jiminy pimp is he is really providing a full service he is giving an outlet to people who can't turn anywhere else avis can't go anywhere else really no. Uh, Roy and Cole can't go anywhere else. They need the services provided by the Golden Tip. You know, Ernie really is the patriot, as it turns out.
This recently came up in another podcast episode I was doing about Mrs. America, which is uh, takes place about 30 years after this show setting, but also is telling a fictionalized account or semi-fictionalized, semi-historic, well, mostly historical accurate with some fictionalization going on of a real event in America. How do you feel about TV shows that take on historical events? Do they have a responsibility to like really hew closely to the truth? Or should they be given a license to tell a, a good narrative, dramatic story and not worry so much about historical accuracy? The only thing I ask for from a show on that front is transparency on which way they're trying to go. So long as there's something, a press release before, a little paragraph at the beginning that says like based on real events, but I just need that transparency from the writers or the producers that say we are starting at a real person's name and from that point forward we're just imagining our own thing or they can say parts of this are accurate and parts of this we imagined or thought you know what if this twist had happened i'm okay with it i just don't like it if they say here this is history in some way and then you have to look at it with like this like eyebrow of like mm, i know that's not right just be transparent with me and then i can go on whatever journey you lay out do you feel that the show gave you that kind of warning like explicitly i'm gonna say no because despite the fact that it says on the things what if you could rewrite the story and i heard it and i read that i viscerally had a reaction to archie getting in the car with roy and no part of me thought he was safe. And so if I felt that way, then I didn't grasp the whole idea yet. I'm having to live through it a little bit to recognize it myself and say, well, I know that's unlikely to have been accurate, not only just in the time, but because of the act itself and everything that was happening. So I guess I'm filling in the blanks, which gets sketchy because you don't know who is going to believe and who's going to say no this is fake and who's going to say no this is exactly how it is in the world how do you feel about I it i agree with you when a show takes on a historical event i think it owes an obligation to tell the story as historically accurate as possible unless the show is or movie is very clearly trying to tell another story so for example abraham lincoln vampire slayer i didn't think was telling me a story about Abraham Lincoln was really a vampire hunter. I understood that that was a satire comedy, and so I wasn't holding it to being historically accurate. When I go to watch a movie like Gettysburg, I, I, I expect that movie to reflect accurately the historical record what happened. You know, dramatic events require that. Mrs. America requires to hew closely to what happened in the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment in the early 70s. This show, I don't think requires that. Or as a viewer, why do you think that writers choose to use real events and or real people and then have them do completely different things that what, than what happened historically? Why not just choose Jojo the Vampire Hunter? Why choose Abraham Lincoln? Why have Cole Porter in there. You know, what what difference does it make? Couldn't they just give a fake name and say, he's the guy that wrote that really important song that you love and don't give Cole Porter's name? Why do you think, as either as viewers or as storytellers, what comes with using real events or real people? That's a complicated answer. I, I think there's a lot that goes into it. I think here, at this point anyway, I'm giving the show the benefit of the doubt 
because I think it would not have any kind of gravitas or legitimacy if it was completely devoid of names that we know 80 years later. There are really giants of Americana who come out of this period. I did not fact check the historical record whether or not Cole Porter was even homosexual, let alone whether or not he rode around in a van, you know, getting jerked off at gas stations. (laughs) But there must be something to using his name. Like how you said, like, you know, I'm not sure if it's important that they used his his actual name or not. But but that's kind of my question. Is it important? Just by going down the IMDb list, there are a tremendous amount of very well-known celebrities who are going to appear in this series. I think using Cole Porter was the show's way of saying, these are fictional characters that you're following, but they exist in a very real version of 1940s mm, I think that's it, Mike. I think you're hitting upon it. I think it, and I'm going to say they're like the anchor to reality. We can have uh-huh. like a balloon uh-huh. and we're all going to go off in this hot air balloon, right? And it's going to be an exciting journey. But if we stay tethered to real life by using real people, by using some amount of real events, then you give it this weightier feel that just gives it like a lot more layers to it and it's kind of fun to think that some of these people who you and I we don't have any access to what Cole Porter was like we don't have any access to some of these people so getting a chance to think that you could be at a dinner party with Vivian Lee is really cool and like there's something to that for me I want to see Abraham Lincoln with a steak you know like I want to see that because there's something about having access to someone who's famous or historically relevant that draws me in already. I want to know more about them. Uh, the reason I like dramatic serialized shows is because it world builds in a way that pulls me in and I feel like I'm living in it. You know, I feel like I'm standing on the corner at Citrus and uh, Normandy watching everyone pull in and out of the Golden Tip gas station when when you're dropping like, oh yeah, Cole Porter comes by, that's his van over there. It, places me in that world. So I think it's I think it's just a really nice detail to to set dress and really establish the aesthetic. I think you have to be careful how you use it, but I think someone using someone like Cole Porter or using Vivian Lee, these are names that are known to us in 2020, but also at the same time, no one really holds them so preciously that you can do something with them or have them do something that may or may not be historically accurate that is going to put people up in arms. I know Cole Porter. I know Cole Porter's music. I agree that he is a giant of, a, of American music and composition, but I don't have any particular feelings about him. He got off in gas stations. Okay. I don't, I don't hold him preciously. So it, it allows you to tell a story where you're not getting held up by the set dressing that you've you established. You can, you can populate the world with real people who were alive in 1940s and have them act in a way that may or may not be historically accurate, but the story is not about them. And they're not so well known that we hold them preciously. If Abraham Lincoln was in that van getting jacked off, there would be people who'd be very upset about that, even though there's a strong rumor that he was homosexual. People would be very upset about that because there are people that hold Abraham Lincoln very precious. And you even even now, hundreds of years later, you can't do anything to the memory of him. No one really holds Cole Porter, I don't think, in that way or Vivian Lee in that way. Beyond knowing the names, really will care about what they're doing. You can set dress, you can you can really world build and put us in there and have Jack and Archie interact with these people without also taking us out of the moment. 
But that's not that's not what Cole Porter would do. He, he didn't drive a, a Volkswagen bus. Fuck Paris. I don't care. I don't know. So it, it allows me to kind of get lost in the show for So a that bit. was an important part that we talked about too, is that the concept that the setting matters, it gives us a little distance because it was far enough away from the current viewer's experiences that you can hear Cole Porter. You might even know who he is, but you probably don't have the depth of knowledge that is going to make you offended. Same with a lot of the other parts that are going to happen in this. We talked about how other shows can do that and allows you to sort of take yourself out of the equation and just listen to the stories of Archie not being able to get a job or listen to the story of Avis feeling marginalized. And you don't have that same... If they said it in 2017, I feel like it would be too close to all of us and we would try to nitpick at the details. And you can't... It would take that you out necessarily. of it. You can. I mean, if you want to sit and you want to dig up pictures of Cole Porter and you want to like read stories and try to find his diary and shit, you could. But it's like it's just enough information, like I said, to keep you grounded. Your head can be in the clouds, but keep mm-hmm. your feet on the ground kind of feeling that we can imagine crazy stuff and different choices. But at the end of the day, we're still Hollywood is still a real place. California is still a real state. You know, like this really did happen in some way that. I think gives it a little bit more weight. I 100% agree. It's all part of that aesthetic. You want to see the palm trees and you want to see, you know, the Hollywoodland sign. That's all part of the set dressing you expect for this time. There are people in that world. You know, I think it's notable that they're using a fictional movie studio. This story seems to be based with this Ace Studio, which is a fictional movie studio. But we got a mention to Louis B. Mayer in this episode. He went founding members of MGM. Metro Goldwyn Mayer, Warner Brothers, massive studio at this time, Universal, a studio that existed at this time. So they could have put this at any of them, but they chose to put it at a fake studio, but also acknowledge that people like Louis B. Mayer existed. That's a subtle difference. Gives them the ability to have them in the show, in the background, but not be particularly concerned about having to hew accurately to the historical record. This this show feels like a very lucid dream, a very colorful dream that someone is having about what this world could be or should be or could have been or should have been or just as a thought experiment. Not using at the forefront all of these real people but having them in the background, that feels right to me. That, that, that feels like that makes sense. It keeps me in the show without having to nitpick or worry about it. Because I would nitpick. I'm very much the kind of person, if this was a show set today... I would be Googling all of the historical facts and, and and be like, oh, why would you even do this? You fucking got it wrong. You would do that? No. I, 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 <laughs> I cannot believe it. <laughs> because it would matter to me. Yeah. It would matter. It would matter to me because it would seem just lazy or manipulative. I love it. So I'm excited to, to follow the show with you and take this journey with Jack and Archie and find out so much more about what Hollywood could be like in this reimagined 1940s era. You like to go with me? I I know for sure I want to go to Dreamland. Hopefully we can all meet at the Golden Tip gas station and uh, keep doing this every week. (laughs) This is Caroline. And this is Mike. And this is Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. 
Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.